Welcome to the Enlighten Up podcast. I'm Lisa Watson and we'll be joined by my co-hosts Nicole Frolick and Brian Koenigberg. The Enlighten Up podcast is a weekly show that provides an unconventional and refreshing spin on spirituality, where three friends and weekly guests share informative, fun, and usually off-the-wall conversations. Unlike others, we provide fringe and skeptical viewpoints on all topics, because our experience has taught us that the echo chamber is a boring place from which to learn. So regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, we can promise you, you're going to find a place to fit in here. So we invite you to grab a drink and listen in on our casual, entertaining, and hopefully enlightening conversation. And Enlighten Up is a self-funded podcast. So if you would like to help us to continue to be able to produce, enhance, and expand the show for our audience, then please send your support using the link in the show notes or go to our website, lightenup.us, and check out our merchandise shop where you can purchase merchandise that will allow you to express some spiritual humor. You may also show your support by leaving us a review on iTunes and following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thank you all so much for listening and supporting us. And now let's jump right into the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Enlighten Up. We are here today for a very special show with a guest of ours who happened to be on one of my most recent videos talking about the divine masculine. Uh, But before we start, Lisa, I hear you're back in Denver, back in the cooler temperatures where your hair doesn't rise so much. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. And I did come back. I I brought back some warmth with me, though. I, it was like snowy and cold while I was gone. But when I got back, we had some nice days. And now it's about to pour out there. Yeah. And we, I hear you we, got some tornadoes. We for a, yeah. We, we went for a walk right after she got back. So she was on a beach Friday morning. And then we were on a Colorado beach like two days later because we went up into the up into the mountains for to go on a hike in Rocky Mountain National Park. And the lakes were still iced over, so there was snow going down to the water. So, oh wow, you know, white sandy beach. Literally walked around the lake, completely snow packed, and I was just cracking up. I'm like, I was on a beach the day before yesterday, and now <laughs> I'm in the snow. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, I'll be back there joining you very soon. Um, Today, uh, we are joined by Justin Deschamps of Stillness in the Storm, and he has been a truth seeker all of his life. He studies physics, psychology, law, philosophy, and spirituality, working to weave these seemingly separate bodies of information into a holistic tapestry of ever-expanding knowledge. Justin is a student of all and a teacher to some. He humbly seeks those who are willing to take responsibility for making themselves and the world a better place. The goal of his work is to help himself and others become better truth seekers and in doing so, uh, form a community of holistically minded individuals capable of creating world healing projects for the benefit of all life, what has been called the great work. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Nicole. Yeah, it's great to have you on here. We, um, well, Lisa and I uh, loved your information that you shared on the video that I put out on the Divine Masculine. And I've been following uh, your work for a couple of years now because I love your website, Stillness in the Storm. How? When did all that start? That started initially as a, a blog talk radio show between myself and Julian Robles, the um, the founder co-founder of Stillness in the Storm, we just wanted to 
have a venue to kind of share some of the information and research we were doing and the insights we were getting because we were really interested in discussion with other people. And then it evolved into a, a website because we wanted to then put links for some of the research we've been doing. And then that kind of just took a life of its own. And that's uh, that's how it started. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, Lisa, you were listening to the video. Lisa was listening to your video while she was on the beach. And um, <laughs> I remember her saying that she's like, his voice was so calming and soothing. It put, it, I wanted to listen to it, but it put me to sleep. He has such a soothing <laughs> voice. <laughs> I have the same reaction to all these types of videos. They just put me to sleep. <laughs> I had to listen to it a few different times on the beach. Well, it was a long video. It was almost two hours. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. But you, it was very impressive. I recommend everyone listen to it. The, the guests that you had were... I mean, you guys are incredibly intelligent and just the way that you were able to speak about the information that, that you were, was just incredible. I was just, I had to keep listening to it because honestly, some of it was just going right over my head. I'm like, now, wait a minute, what? Back up. <laughs> I had to, I had to hear it a few t different times just to get it. So. Yeah, it was a great show. I, I was telling Nicole that, um, in chat that a lot of the stuff that I'm researching now, I'm kind of like in the trenches of the research. So there's a lot of information just kind of pouring in my consciousness. And I haven't necessarily done the outer work compilation and presentation bit of it yet. So having the ability to have a, a conversation and a dialogue is really helpful for me actually to kind of uh, systematize and integrate a lot of this information while in the process of having a great conversation at the same time. So I found it very rewarding. So do you put together a, a number of these videos that, you know, that Lisa and Nicole are talking about one two hour video in particular, are there lots of them on your website or this is some content that you're curating? Well, specifically the, what I would call the, the blanket term of restoring the human family, which includes male, female dynamics in various dimensions of analysis, like psychology emotions, intellectualization, animalistic, um, biological programs and spiritual values and directionalization, you might say. All that's stuff that I've been researching for about two or three years now fairly intensely, but it's such a massive body of information and there's not necessarily like a, a good place I can go to have it all compiled. So it's kind of a lot of like boots on the ground, maverick research work that I'm slowly starting to put out more and more drips of as I'm getting a better comprehension understanding because I, I prefer to get a really good comprehension understanding of a body of information and have it be substantive or verified and fact-checked before I start talking about it publicly so oh, that's great yeah but but the video that we were talking about Brian was Nicole did one she right, yeah. did a round table on the divine masculine oh, and oh, she okay. had three guests and Justin was one of them so um Justin let's talk about the um the the restructuring of family, the divine, the union of the divine masculine and feminine and how that's playing out in society right now. Because you, I see you putting a lot of posts on Facebook uh, about that, like your own just personal thoughts uh, put into form, written form, and then sometimes you're doing blogs on it on other people's research. What are your thoughts just on a, 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 from a higher perspective right now, broader sense of where society is in that dualistic perspective of the, the masculine and feminine? I would say that 
if we were going to kind of take a snapshot of the world and the way things are looking at, you know, the spiritual evolution of consciousness or sociopolitical dynamics or the deep state or even just simple, normal, everyday life of romance and falling in love, I think all of it can kind of be characterized as um, the basically the, the challenges of life that come with trying to be a spiritual person in the world. And I, and to unpack that even further, I would say that we're living in a situation to kind of put it in a narrative where humanity has effectively lost connection with the divine masculine and divine feminine, the spiritual basis of reality that organizes everything. And that is either because we just lost touch or because it was intentionally manufactured. I'm leaning more towards the second option, which is that people in power, um, the deep state, which is a more neo-term, the Illuminati, Cabal, uh, Luciferians, um, or the dark occultists, which is a pretty good blanket term, who have been in control or manipulating society for many thousands of years. They know deeply about these principles, and they've been what I would call weaponizing our own nature against us to control human population and to control society for their own ends. So what we have, right. Yeah. So when you say, you go ahead, you go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to finish by saying that I think there are many different influences playing out in human society right now. There's a a new seeming resurgence of energy from the divine masculine and feminine. If we want to put a, a simple term to it, that seems to be making these old paradigms not work anymore. And I think people are becoming more and more personally aware of these malfunctions. And that's why there's a greater emphasis and kind of yearning for woke content about, you know, relationships and love and things like this. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you were on uh, the video, one of the, the things that I had no idea about until you had mentioned it, which I thought was extremely valuable information was how the uh, deep state, the cabal, the Illuminati, whatever you want to call it, uh, how they went about uh, destroying society and starting with the feminine and destroying the values within the feminine. Because from what you were saying on the video, they basically shape society. The women are one of their roles in a way of what their their strengths are is they're very social and they help uh, form society. Do you want to go a little bit into that for our, our audience? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. Um, well, the basic premise, the kind of punchline is that men pioneer and women aggregate and compile. And that draws from many many psychological, biological, and even neurological observations. So let me give you a little context. So if we'd imagine what um, a tribal culture would be like before we have a lot of technology, it's a very kind of primitive culture. There's not a whole lot other than just basic survival. And what that would do is it would create a situation where the strongest in that culture would have to go out and gather resources and protect the tribe. And those traditionally tend to be men. And women, by virtue of the fact that they have to raise children, they can't do those things. So they create the familial unit. And what ends up happening is that the, when you might say the wisdom that is accumulated through 
the men in their the facing of the challenges to maintain the culture that gets taught to the women when they're in a familial setting so that they actually become the kind of story aggregators the narrative aggregators of society so this this model i feel like it's really easy to understand this dynamic and obviously this is just one perspective so i'm not trying to paint any absolute you know labels about as far as what men and women should be doing i'm just speaking about the the ancient kind of systems of society and how that can help us understand the dynamic now. So what that means is that um, in, a, in a cultural setting, women have the ability to choose the best mate. And that happens in two different dimensions. So women have a biological and a psychological sensitivity to competence, to confidence and skill and intelligence, particularly strength, intelligence, and the capacity for dynamic change. And one of the ways that that plays itself out in culture, especially primitive cultures, is competition. So men compete with each other either to be the best hunter or to you know have the most social standing or to be the strongest. And then that display, because it automatically creates a winner and a loser, to put it in simple terms, it makes it very easy for women to see that what, what man is more valuable than another man. And through their choice, they decide, well, that man there, the one who's the alpha, that's the one I want to be the father of my children because he has, he's intelligent, he has social standing because he's one of a feat of strength, and he has the capacity to provide me resources and nurture me in my, my most intimate time of need. Because obviously when a woman is childbearing, when she's pregnant, and then shortly after, her attention is basically in maintaining the life of the child, and she doesn't have the capacity to, to um, necessarily provide her own resources. So what that did evolutionarily is it created a situation where the women and their social culture, because women aggregate around each other in the tribal setting and they share wisdom and they're very social, they end up defining cultural values, which men are going to win the competition. How do we decide which men win the competition? Well, that's decided by women because ultimately the prize from a man's perspective is the ability to mate with his, the woman of his choice. And the prize for a woman's perspective is the, the ability to attach herself or be supported by a man who can actually be a good father to her children and, and protect her during this time of need. So the, everything I just described is a very loose, rough description of how primitive societies work. As time goes on, that dynamic changes and unfolds and these ancient kind of more animalistic social mechanisms really start to change and evolve and grow. And But that, that same basic essence is there and we're psychologically and neurologically, we're hardwired to feel out these things, even in modern society. So to, to put an end to your question, um, you know, the what the deep state has done is learned about this mechanism that women choose, men propose, men approach, men try to initiate either social or romantic contact or sexual contact. And it's ultimately the choice of the woman which decides whether he's successful. And what and when she chooses him, what gets reinforced in a social setting, because other men and women get to see that, is whatever values he exemplified. So obviously, if a woman is going to choose men who are you know, more misogynistic or egotistical or more tyrannical, then those values end up becoming proliferated in the culture. Whereas if women choose more honest, more loving, more nurturing men, then those values end up getting proliferated in culture. And, uh, you know, the deep state knows how to manipulate these things and have been doing it for a really long time. 
So when you when so then what would happen then is if you have women who are not having a strong value system within themselves, then they're going to be choosing from that place, which is not choosing making great choices or making great decisions that are truly for their betterment. So how did the deep state go in and and destroy the value system of the women? I would say the the main spear tip of that is the, the destruction of intrinsic philosophy and the ability to think and assess the values for yourself. So there's two ways that you determine somebody's social standing. You determine their social standing because you recognize the merit of what they're doing, because you can see the value of what you're doing on your own terms. And then there's an extrinsic value measurement, which is, well, because everybody else in society sees this person as valuable, they must be valuable. So what the cabal did, I would say, is they've, and this has been happening for thousands of years, and and this weapon works for many different things, but it's basically to destroy your ability to make up your own mind about what is true and good and valuable. And one of the ways they do that is through religion. Religion imposes an artificial value system on a culture. It says these things are good, these other things are bad. And once you've imposed that with a kind of hard rule um, enforcement mechanism, then it forces the society to then cease to develop intrinsic methods of assessing value. So developing your own process of seeing a person's worth and focusing on what the the cultural ideologues or the controllers of the culture end up telling, which is the priest class. So I would say that that is the key mechanism and that plays itself out even today, even though we don't necessarily think of it as a religious context. We have social media, we have um, television is a huge one, movies, all these things are extrinsic or socially enforced value mechanisms that try to say, well, these men or these women are good, these things are good, and these other things are bad. And if you don't believe in these things, which is what everybody else believes in, then you can't be a part of the bigger culture. So does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, Justin, when would you say... Um, or is is there a generally agreed upon, or is it something you've researched? Um, the beginning of the cabal is there a is there a certain time period in history or an event that happened that that leaders got together and said, "Hey, we need to start this thing and be in control." That's a great question. I would say that there are many events like that throughout history. Um, I've studied a lot of history and alternative history and all sorts of various things. And the short answer is there's no 100% definitive answer I can give you as far as when the the big switch of to, from mm-hmm. freedom to slavery happened. However, the the principles that make slavery possible is the lack of competence and the ability to direct yourself in your life. So if you are self a mastered person, if you're a sovereign person, if you know how to form your own knowledge and discern properly, then you're not going to be as easily manipulated by other people, in which case the need for external control diminishes. But I would say, generally speaking, it seems like you might say that there's always been a kind of battle between external control and internal sovereignty. And when the internal sovereignty of any social group lowers itself enough, then that makes the situation ripe 
for a cabal or a deep state to come in and impose you know these autocratic systems and there's many instances i'm actually reading a fantastic book right now it's called Liber clan glass which is a history reaching back 10,000 bc all the way up to uh, about 250 ad and it covers a whole cycle of events of this very type where people become free they learn to grasp the principles and the tools that make them free by developing the ability to be self-directed autonomous sovereign beings internally then some negative force comes in and tries to manipulate them they succeed to some fashion we enter a dark age and then the whole cycle repeats across some 50 60 100 years something like that how, how do you see you know Throughout history, the the inability for cultures to you know interact and communicate is one reason why you can't pinpoint this to you know one particular time in history, because cultures evolved at different times and in different places, and and similar things happened in terms of the people in, in control. How do you how do you look at where we are today in an era where we are all connected there there really isn't anything happening in a you know in a hidden secret way anymore because we can share information and we can have our own we have access to our own information so how do you see that changing this and and does it start to break down are we at the beginning of the 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 demise of this cabal system I would say we are. Um, I, I personally think that even though there's these kind of cycles of slavery and freedom all throughout history, the, the average is a trajectory of moving towards freedom. So we are actually progressing towards more, a more free, enlightened society, despite the way things look. Um, but, you know, the, the plan for how that unfolds is, is, uh, what I would say a dynamic between what we as individuals willingly try to do in our own self and what influences come from society. So even though we live in a world where there's a lot of connection, even though we arguably have access to more information than we've ever had before, I mean, you know, it's probably uh, a cliche at this point, but I really do think we're living in a post-apocalyptic world. The uh, great unveiling has already happened. I mean, we have access to information through the internet that people died and were burnt at the stake for not even two, three hundred years ago. But the big problem is that what do people have an interest in? What do they value? And this is the way that the deep state counter this. So they, what I would say is that there is a kind of, um, there is a plan, there is an evolution of consciousness that is intelligent. It's not unintelligent. And in order to maintain their status as kind of the rulers of humanity, the cabal or the deep state do actually have to improve the quality of life of human beings across on the planet across the spectrum. And one of the ways they did that is they moved away from a like an overtly enslaved society where it was people knew they were slaves and there was just no way to move move around like a feudalistic type of society. And now we're in a kind of more free range slave society where people by the by what they choose to spend their time on either learn how to become better slaves or they learn how to become more free. So right now we're living in a situation where if you choose freedom, if you really want to develop yourself and master your consciousness and actually become a better person, not only just for the 
joy of doing that spiritually, but just because it makes your life better from health wise, you know, relationship wise, everything you have access to that information now more than you've probably ever had in history, but you're being tempted with all this other distraction and the distraction takes on many forms. Right. AKA the Kardashians. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, so I, I lived in a communist nation for five years. I lived in China for five years Mm -hmm. and it was, it was really interesting to, to study and understand how communism, why communism existed. And as I looked into it and talked to people and read things, I started to understand it was equally fascinating when it failed. Mm -hmm. And if you start to look through history at when communism failed, generally when the population became, you know, like 50% you know, more than half, 50, 60% of the population became educated enough where they could make decisions on their own. And it's, it's interesting. And I, and I think we're probably talking about a similar threshold in, in, you know, in, in, in this line of, you know, of the conversation with, with the, the cabal, because even though we live in, you know, of first world country and we have our first world problems like the Kardashians. Um, we, and, and we're generally considered educated. This idea, what you're talking about, most people dismiss, like this is dismissed as conspiracy theory. If I, you know, talk with most people and I'm assuming if I talk with most people, they would not agree that it exists. So I'm curious where you think, where do you think we, well, two questions. Would you agree with that uh, supposition? And where do you think we lie on that scale? How, you know, what percentage of people do you think, think like you, you know, are we at like 10, 20% of the population, you know, is like-minded enough. And, and, you know, you, you, you start to, you, when, when you, when you think about what that number is, it also helps you plan to, okay, how do we get there? How do we help get more information out or, you know, tip the scale faster? Mm. Yeah, I would say that I think there's, as far as the first question, how many people are kind of hip to the, to the deep state or the cabal or things like this? I think there's, it's a spectrum. If we were to put a black and white assessment, people consciously recognize that they were being manipulated by a nefarious group of people. I think mm-hmm. the population is probably somewhere around 20 to 30%. Um, but there's different levels of comprehension there. I would say if we ex- expand what, you know, if we're not using labels like deep state and Illuminati, I think almost everybody at some level realizes that corruption is a major problem and people who know how to manipulate and don't lack morals or excuse me, lack morals and ethics are willing to use their strength and intelligence and hmm. whatnot to gain advantage. So I think most people recognize that reality because how can you not, you kind of contend with it on a daily basis. Um, that being said, I think there is a, to answer your second question, the their information is out there, but it's often not necessarily a problem of accessing the specific data, the data points. It's not a problem of accessing the raw observational information or experience. It's a problem of interpretation. It's a context problem. And that's this is where the attack on philosophy and critical thinking skills comes in. Because even if you showed somebody all the information they needed to know to know that 
uh, let's say MSG, monosodium glutamate, is an excitotoxin that destroys your neurological function as it passes through the blood-brain barrier, most people don't know what they're looking at. So you need to nest that in a narrative that they can interpret. But because your narrative or your belief system literally governs your reality, and without that, you're, you, you start to go insane because this, the chaos of life is, can't be understood. People generally tend to reject any reality that doesn't agree with their own because to go through that reality shift process is often very traumatic and unsettling. Well, yeah, if we don't, if we don't learn the BBB and its effect on our, on, you know, how, how a chemical can, you know, interact with our brain, then yeah, you're, you, you can't even have a conversation with somebody. Right, exactly. They, they, just, they just don't understand Which is it. why there's an inundation of um, valueless uh, content out there for people to feast on, you know, through social media, through TV, through movies, through music, whatever it, whatever it is. It's this idea of keeping your brain completely numb and uh, involved in things that aren't really uh, expanding your mind or giving you valuable information to make you better at choosing or like you said, discerning information as you're reading it. The other, the other problem also I find is there's so much purposeful disinformation put out there to make it so confusing for people when they're looking at stuff to know what is um, – what is true and what is not true, what is factual, what is not factual, because, you know, we have a very corrupt media system we have, and that stems through all like, not just um, TV or cable, but through all avenues, whether it's uh, websites, blogs, all that kind of thing, videos, the discernment, like, like you were saying, Justin, having those critical thinking skills and being able to have some sort of semblance of tuning into your own internal GPS of truth, of knowing when something intuitively doesn't feel right to you, as well as logically um, knowing that, there is a uh, a huge disruption and separation there uh, for people. And that has been imposed upon us with a ton of disinformation. Yeah, I completely agree. Look at the popularity of the Game of Thrones. (laughs) I mean, when you're just talking about information like brainless mindless stuff like what is it like a million people have signed this petition we were talking about that when i was visiting you nicole about how you can get a million people to sign a petition to recreate season eight yeah more game of thrones (laughs) but but there's so many you know other issues going on here about you know, people's rights and things exactly. like that. Exactly. If that- people actually took the time to be interested and invested in real issues that are of real importance, but they have no idea are actually going on and they have no idea that their sovereignty is being um, uh, taken away from them, then yeah, like these are the things that people are actually interested in signing petitions on recreating the last season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> like that's a perfect right. example. Yeah, and it's it's a grand form of mass distraction, and you know the the one of the things that the deep state does very well is they deny you the, these basic needs that so we have, you know, animalistic needs because we're we are spiritual beings indwelling a community of biological cells that are animalistic in origin, and we have emotional needs, we have intellectual needs, and we have spiritual needs. 
And there's various places we need these things. If you're not stimulating yourself by thinking about who you are in relation to all that is, and these archetypal aspects of reality, like what is intelligence, what is honor, what is duty, what is fellowship, what is love, you know, these are really high level concepts that have been so stripped from our society for various reasons that what they end up doing is they just repackage them in a form of grand distraction. And that's why a lot of the most popular things, if you look out in the world, you know, Marvel movies, Game of Thrones is a great example. What are the themes that are speaking to people in Games of Thrones? Well, the hardships of life. What is one of the things that's like the entire society is predicated on honor, duty, your word, you know, doing what is right versus not doing what is right. So there's a lot of things that are being played out in a show like that because they are deeply meaningful. And I would argue that we're, we're programmed, quote unquote, whether genetically or, you know, spiritually via spiritual influences to explore and yearn and desire these things. And when that's robbed from our society, because we're living in a, you know, a, a uh, enriched <laughs> culture where all the nutrients been stripped away and all we have is fluffy, sugary things, then we reach for not so great places to get that. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so popular. Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. And I, I've actually never even um, heard anyone describe our society as like that idea of enriched flour and sugary products, because that's really what we're being inundated with on like a mental level and emotional level. Um, beyond like the physical stuff that we, uh, a lot of people are, because health seems to be kind of one of the the starting points of people waking up to things like of corruption. That seems to be a common um, initiation or starting point for many, uh, not all, but it seems that's where a lot of people seem to, they're comfortable with that level of corruption and seeing, oh, wow, the yeah, there's these companies that are creating food that's really not good for me and I shouldn't be eating that and fast food restaurants and uh, GMO products and things like that. They, they start to understand that and how it's affecting their bodies. It's, it's, and, but that makes sense because when we think about it from a spiritual level, you know, the body is the final, is the final um, manifestation. And so it's almost like reverse engineering uh our way back to health through the body system of the physical, the mental, the emotional, and then to spiritual. Yeah, I completely agree. The first stage of awakening is an awareness of body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the body. And I mean, I I like to say that spiritual growth is self-centered in, you know, in where the meat of the work happens, but it's altruistic in expression. So, you know, you are at the center of your own universe. And your body is kind of like the main gateway that you experience your emotions. You, you know, you experience the, the effects of the things that you cause to happen and you take action in the world with. So I know for me, you know, waking up to health was, was the thing that sparked. I watched the, the Gerson miracle, which is about, you know, Max Gerson, who developed cures for cancers in the twenties. And that just completely shook me to my foundations. How is it that this is that this information that's been saving lives is not, you know, proselytized everywhere. Yeah. The suppression of it all and the corruption to keep us all sick. What, okay. Let's transition into relationships. Cause I think that's a really, I mean, this is. Oh, hang on. I got a, I got a question before we go to relationships. This is really important. Okay. And this is about, this is about the cabal. Go for it. Am am I endangered now that I've talked to you about this? Are you, are <laughs> 
are you in in danger? Are you on some sort of watch list? <laughs> uh, well, if I'm not, then I'm not doing something right. Um, I, I would say, you know, just the fact that you're taking an interest on things that are outside of the status quo, you you may be on somebody's watch list. But I mean, we're living in a wor- world of endless domestic spying. So, you know, I don't think you have anything to worry about from the deep state necessarily, unless you become a clear, clear and present threat. However, I will say spiritually that anytime you receive truth and you don't act on it, then you suffer. So whether or not what I'm saying is true, I don't know. You'll have to decide that for yourself, but you know that I think that's, there is always a danger there and that's true for all of us. I think. Interesting. Fair Interesting. Enough. Yeah. So for relationships, a lot of, um, I mean, when you start to understand the relationship with self first and you start to work on your relationship with your own self and bringing that, harmonizing that back into balance, understanding uh, what it truly means to um, fully honor yourself and respect yourself and love yourself and all of these things, you then are in a place to uh, make better choices uh, for who you bring into your own energy field, whether it's in the form of a partner or maybe it's a friend, uh, things like that. What, what are your thoughts or opinions on where we are as a society when it comes to relationship uh, with people right now? And where do you see it all going given what you're kind of currently seeing happening right now? I think we're in a pretty big radical transition as far as, you know, the nature of human relationships and I'm specific, specifically speaking to more romantic relationships, but all relationships I think are being affected. Um, as far as, you know, even if we just look at mainstream history, we don't consider any alternative histories. Pair bonding and coupling for most of history was out of necessity, not necessarily out of love. And um, there a lot of the the systems of law that, you know, the really kind of the more ancient systems of law that came about was called positive law from a, you know, a study of law perspective, which is the laws that human beings make to deal with the realities we're living in. A lot of them had to deal with, you know, paternity and, you know, marriage was itself a kind of a revolutional, revolutionized concept because it gave men for the first time a social mechanism for dealing with the uncertainty of whether or not the child that they had was actually theirs. So um, what I'm seeing now is a big shift in, you know, the, the kind of underlying motivations of love um, uh, or a relationship. And I just recently did some research through a TED talk the other day where they said there was a survey done to say, what is the most important thing that you as a person need to pair bonds with another person? And that's mutually uh, mutual love and attraction is huge. So prior to that it was more of just safety and comfort and you know you passing on your line if you're a man maybe depending if you're in a paternal culture or, or whatnot so i think right now because of many different factors and influences uh the internet probably being one of the bigger ones but also before even the internet came online just the, the spread of a lot of information and moving towards a society that was more centered on uh you know, science and understanding reality versus just believing what religion tells us, 
the the nature of relationships is changing radically. And, you know, if you just look, if you flip on the news, if you watch some, let YouTube drift for a while, and if you search for a relationship, you're going to come across polyamory, you're going to come across, you know, um, non-gender binary relationships. So there's a whole lot of, um, you know, shifting that's happening in terms of what people will say is a kind of relationship. And I think that's healthy in some ways because we, it's always good to redefine, you know, why we're getting into relationships with people. But it also, I think, needs to be balanced with a healthy appraisal of, you know, the truth and reality and, you know, the influences that are affecting us. So I'd say, you know, relationships right now have probably, it's probably the one of the more difficult times to be in relationship because a lot of the traditional and cultural mechanisms that have guided and the expression of these desires have been eroded and changed. And, you know, from a, just a strictly uh, practical and psychological level, the thing that gives expression to your desire to pair bond with somebody, your desire for sexual contact, your desire for fellowship or nurturing, that's culture. So you have these implicit desires, you're programmed with them biologically, psychologically, and spiritually, but the way they get expressed is through culture. And because culture is changing so radically, it's giving a lot of uh, opportunity for shifting and changing, sometimes not necessarily in a good direction. Um, so, so Yeah. I would I would agree with that. It seems that we've definitely shifted. It seems like relationships are more self-centered now because especially with the the rise of, you know, feminism and just the way things are shifting there that I can do it all for myself. You know, I can take care of myself. So we're not it seems like we're not looking for a partner that necessarily complements us. It's more about sex is <laughs> kind of, you know, it, or like, it's just, it seems to be more about pleasure. It's about mm -hmm. that, not the connection, that magnetism yeah. and that connection. And, you know, I, I need, I want to be with this person because I feel just like this really strong physical and, and maybe even mental or spiritual connection as well, where, as you were saying, relationships of the past, you know, it was more about the your typical divine and feminine divine masculine type of roles as far as you know being the hunter and gatherer and being the nurturer and and coming together to to create this union that would be balanced with both of those things where now it seems like you know women seem to think well I can just do it I I don't need a man for anything I'm just going to do it all for myself all I need from him is this connection right that's kind of what that's kind of what I'm feeling is going on yeah, isn't that a, one of the the deeper plans like of the what i would think of the deep state or you know the cabal is knowing that and correct me if i'm wrong but i i believe that a man there's a certain um a man likes to feel needed mm -hmm. and there's a sense of like purpose behind that for the man uh with another woman or you know in relationship and when the woman takes that that sense of being needed away how does that affect men yeah great question i i'd say you know there's a, there's a reason why in most traditional cultures male and female roles were separated and it's because there is a need 
what you might call a kind of male and female territory that uh, men and women seem to want to, to lay claim to. And when they do that well, um, then they seem to have the most fulfilling type of relationship. Um, so uh, I would say, you know, one of the things that is really important for both men and women as far as the, how they self-actualize, this is what I'm coming to understand in my studies, is that and that we, I'm looking to um, not only kind of mythological information like the hero's journey, but I'm also looking to a study of traditional cultures as well as what actually happens. I study a lot of, um, you know, uh, pickup artist kind of community material because these are like the boots on the ground people actually trying to figure out how to make relationships work. So it's really, there's a lot of great data sources out there. And what I've seen, what seems to be a pretty good principle is that men... In order to feel like they're the, they are competent, strong, and capable of being in a kind of traditional masculine role, what I would argue is a divine masculine role, they have to take on some type of a burden, like we were talking about on our podcast. Um, they have to do something meaningful for society. And if you if you look at history, you know this is pretty prevalent in a lot of cases in wartime situation. Men are going out there and they're joining, you know, the Great War in World War One. There was a lot of people, men in particular, of course, who joined the war because they wanted to serve their community. They wanted to do something good. They wanted to also display their masculine prominence to other men and society. And so like, hey, look, I'm taking on these hard things, too. I can protect my society, too. And when that happens, something activates inside them. They, they feel confident. It actualizes their beingness and they... They feel so good. You know, one of the things that's really described well in the hero's journey is that the hero is in this state of nescience. He thinks everything's great and he doesn't necessarily have to learn anything. But then some horrible thing or tragedy or situation gets thrust upon him. And now he has to go and fight Medusa. He has to go and fight the dragon. And he doesn't necessarily want to go and do that. But he does it because he cares about his family. He cares about the love of his life. And then that love for his partner is the thing that helps him when he's in the abyss trying to find the dragon. It's what gives him courage to face the dragon. And then when he kills the dragon or he tames the dragon, he brings that wisdom. He brings the golden fleece back to the tribe and he's proud and he displays his, his prideful actions to the crowd or to the community. And then, you know, that gets received well by the woman who is very happy that she's having the boon of the of the the hero to reward herself and her family and that gives her social status so these you know these programs or these uh, instincts are really playing out a lot in our culture and in our psychology and i think the influences that are at work here are really old but once you start once you learn how to embrace them and you learn to embrace these these uh, needs that we all have with each other, then are really the most fulfilling type of um, uh, relationships can be had. And apologies, I kind of lost my train of thought there. So, no, like, so what you're saying is, is that like, okay, so what we've seen, especially let's just say with the feminist movement, because that's pretty easy to um, discuss or use in this example, is that, oh my God, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> it just completely vaporized out of my mind. Um, uh, okay, no, no, no. The feminist movement yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is this idea of um, oh my gosh, 
how is this possible? Uh, I, I, I think the clearest I, thought. I just recovered my train of thought. So if you're, okay, you're struggling, forward. I can jump yeah. in. No, go. Okay. <laughs> so what I was trying to get to there, apologize for the kind of meandering presentation, but um, what, we were talking about, you know, these traditional roles and how there are these, when men learn how to be men and women learn how to be women, it seems like they can have the, the most satisfying, satisfying relationships, something like that. So it, traditionally in culture, there's a reason why this, this took place. And right now we have this kind of bleeding through or the destruction of these traditional roles for various reasons. Um, and that, I think that's having a major effect on our relationships. One of the things that's interesting there's this concept of a beta male and an alpha male. So a beta male is from a purely, uh, let's say, psychological or even relationship, like ideal relationship perspective. A beta male is somebody who can provide emotional, material, and intellectual support, but isn't necessarily a, a genetic alpha. He doesn't necessarily have the highest social standing. He doesn't necessarily the strongest man on the block. Okay, something like that. An alpha has the ability to appear like a strong masculine role, a dominant role, but ne isn't necessarily the provider. These are the kind of like the the normal ways we think about alpha and beta in, in the, the culture and society. I would actually say that those are somewhat true, but I'd like to expand them a little bit. So I think all men have the capacity to be a supporter but and nurture a thing uh, Nurture, be nurturing in a relationship, both intellectually, emotionally, and materially, while also constantly pushing themselves to their limits so that they are uh, creating the status of an alpha. And I would say a true alpha is somebody who has the ability to, to face life bravely and deal with the challenges of that bravely. And once, if you can embody those roles properly, then you will naturally activate the pair bonding instincts in you're a female uh, person. What's happening now is that because of things like feminism is these normal traditional roles that men have embodied are now being encroached upon by women and women like you, um, you were saying have the kind of have this like, well, I can do it all. I don't really need a man for to support me because I can go get a job. I don't really need a man to satisfy me sexually because I have a vibrator. You know, I don't really need uh, men to get protect me because I have the state. I have the police. So these these roles that men have traditionally embodied to not only to prove to themselves that they are good men, but have also and given them the ability to display their masculine power to women so that they can be seen as highly attractive, have been degraded. And what that tends to do is it causes a lot of sexual frustration in women in particular. And this is why I think we have, you know, 70% of marriages by the, at the end of 20 years end up becoming sexless. Um, the, the prevalence of cheating and divorces have increased sharply because I think there's a lot of these traditional roles have broken down. And just to put a, a final point on this and even a caveat, I know anytime we talk about these kind of issues, it's... It, it's very easy to think, you know, well, you know, this is just like conservatism. This is just like misogyny views that you're th talking about. And that's not reality because there's really no differences between men and women. It's all a social contract construct. Well, yes, gender is partially a social contract because, like I said, all these instincts flesh themselves out in culture. But these programs, this need, these alpha and omega, this kind of... Um, 
these ancient programs are built into us in our animal nature. And if we don't master these things, then they will create a lot of problems in society. And I would argue that the, the role of spirituality is partially to master your animal nature by becoming human, by learning how to be spiritual and actualizing your spiritual potentials. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what I wanted to say is, is that, um, like, for instance, the feminist movement did a really good job. And when I say the feminist movement, I mean, like modern feminism, not original feminism, um, did a really good job of creating a, a, a negative stigma around these traditional roles so mm -hmm. that women would feel less than because of their natural roles uh, that have been uh, seen throughout tradition and um, as well as making men feel guilty for their traditional roles. And so you have this movement that uh, I feel is, is partially responsible um, and was intentional uh, to destroy and create this false or negative stigma around the traditional roles instead of um, just focusing more on uh, equality and empowerment within the self so that empowerment is found within the relationship of both parties, uh, that it's more the focus has been on what's, what's wrong as opposed to what's good. And then taking it down this hill of just slow destruction over decades to, um, ingrain it in our minds so that we're programmed because I certainly know as a woman I was programmed to believe this way until I started to unlearn some of the stuff and 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 reconnect with my own uh masculine and feminine from a very internal place not from what's being projected on me from society but really going in and asking myself and connecting with my own self through um, my own spiritual journey but to really see that these these ideas were absolutely programmed into into us to devalue the things that actually are of high value and then of course bring high value onto things that aren't of high value and i think it's this idea of always because i i see this all the time i hear it all the time especially with a lot of my um female friends and actually i i hear it now with the um, male friends who've uh really bought into this is this idea that, you know, when you speak of a traditional role in that sense, or, um, you know, for instance, a man can do this. Well, the woman's like, well, I can do it too. Well, of course you can do it. No one's saying you can't do it. Um, and no one's saying you shouldn't do it. But it's this idea that if someone's doing it, then you have to do it too. And you have to do it exactly like them, as opposed to, how about the woman have her own way of doing something that is unique to her own femininity and not try to be so masculine in how the masculine would do it? And I think that's where um, femininity has been weaponized and used against women is it's been put on them to be much more like a man as opposed to empowering them within their own femininity and doing things in their own unique way. Yes, exactly. Um you know, one of the things that's interesting is there was a study done with, I believe it was Match.com, where they asked women to rate the images of men that they found the most enticing. And they presented two categories of images. They presented a series of images where men were doing traditional masculine roles like, you know, working in the garage, being outside, 
cutting the lawn, you know, building things, that kind of stuff. And then they showed images of uh, men doing more domestic activities like folding laundry and cleaning dishes and vacuuming. And 80% of the women chose the more traditional masculine images as the more sexually enticing. So what I think that speaks to is, like you were saying, is there's a, there's, there is this need here, but there's also this cultural influence that has been pushed through fe feminism that is trying to, and let me just qualify that by saying, I, I'm referring to the more neo-feminist, uh, even misandric or man-hating version of feminism, not the more traditional idea of feminism where equal rights for men and women. So there's a, there's a dividing line there that I want to make sure is clear. Um, you know, the, this idea that women can do everything that men can do and they should, and even men should be capitulating to women taking over all these roles doesn't really work in harmony with the way we're designed just basically at a psychological level. And, um, you know, I think that's playing a major role in why relationships are, can be very challenging, especially in the modern age. Yeah. And I think that um, for this idea of, okay, so I'm actually really curious. I think this is a great topic. Can we talk about sex? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, because I see this in a lot of relationships uh, of people who are close to me. And I see this, uh, you, you, you touched on it very briefly about women um, not having a sex drive anymore um, and men being unfulfilled in that way as well then, obviously, in, the, in a marriage or um, a very committed relationship, you see over time this gets less and less and less. Um, very rarely do you see relationships where it gets more and more and more or it maintains um, a really healthy level. So you mentioned how women are more attractive to these traditional um, uh, pictures or ideas of men in their traditional roles and less in, say, more uh, roles that would be associated with women. Do you, do you, let's talk about the correlation then of the demasculinization of men becoming more feminine and then the masculinization of women trying to become more male because that's kind of where our society is at right now and how that is affecting sex, sex drive and sexual, healthy sexual relations within partners. Sure. That's a great topic. Um, well, another interesting thing to note about, uh, these traditional roles is another study that was done that asked women to rate the nature of their, their sexual fantasies during their menstrual cycle. And this was a cross-cultural study um, conducted several years ago. And what they noticed is that when women are ovulating or when they're their most fertile, they tend to fantasize more about strong, domineering, uh, masculine men, not, not necessarily like, you know, uh, disrespectful, but just traditional strength, you know, roles, that kind of thing. Um, and when they were not in their ovulating cycle, they tend to be attracted to the more soft, nurturing um, type of uh, man. So what that suggests is that there is a, there is a biological re response that happens. And I would say that sexuality is itself more regulated right now at our current level of consciousness evolution by these ancient biological programs than they are by 
the emerging kind of spiritual culture that's happening in our society. Although that is the ultimate destiny is the fusion between these two things, I think. So um, I think what's happening is that men are ceasing to embody roles that trigger these uh, programs in women. And these programs for masculinity being triggered in women is really important to create what I would call a peak sexual expression. So we're, we're designed for peak sexual expression. And there's multiple reasons why. It's not just about getting your rocks off. Um, Wilhelm Reich was able to demonstrate that when you have a peak sexual experience and you have what he called full orgastic release, that actually discharges all the pranic energies channels in your body. And what, what gets discharged as well is all the kind of like psychic gunk that gets collected in your body. So if you're not having a true sexual release, then you're, a lot of your mental cognition is literally affected and that leads to all sorts of health problems. So what's happening now is that the, the way that men and women ex, um, identify and create peak sexual function in relationship is through embodying these roles. There's these ancient biological programs. So particularly for women, when they're in their peak ovulation cycle, they like to be led by a strong man who knows how to initiate, who knows how to take charge, you know, who knows how to do these things. And we can, I would love to get into a specific discussion because these things are kind of nebulous. But um, what I'm getting at really is that if a, a, a woman's sexual ability to be sec have a, a peak sexual experience is much more about the character of her man and his social status than it is about him just being physically attractive, although that's certainly a component. So if a man is not displaying traditional, or I don't even want to say traditional, if a man is not being assertive, if he's not confident in himself, if he's not taking a leading role, if he's not learning how to um, be uh, mysterious and adventurous, then that's not necessarily going to excite the woman's ancient biological programs. And that's going to create to a dissatisfaction sexually. And I think what's happening, you know, at a grand level is that because these roles have been stripped from our culture, especially in the West for the past 70 years, you know, we, we used to have men's clubs and things like this. So it used to be okay for men to get together and talk to each other about the things that work with their women and, you know, vice versa. And that's important, I think, because again, these, we learn how to do this from culture. You don't just, you're not just born learning how to perfectly being a master Casanova. You have to actually learn how to do these things and vice versa. Um, because these things have been stripped from our society, we have a lot of what I would say disillusionment. So, you know, we, we're, we have a lot of romance and things pushed through movies and TV shows talking about how falling in love is like this peak experience. It should be your greatest joy and the thing that you try to make your whole life about. And then you go out into your first forays in dating and your partner doesn't know what the hell he's doing and he doesn't necessarily embody traditional roles and therefore you're dissatisfied. Then that dissatisfaction obviously affects the man. And then both people end up walking away and dissatisfied and then then you have the outlet of pornography and other things to kind of offset your dissatisfaction. And before you know it, after 10 or 20 years goes by, you're just so fundamentally disillusioned with the very prospect that you can actually have a good relationship with somebody that it just completely devolves. And we end up having, you know, sexless marriages or 
people barely being able to have good, uh, you know, sexual experiences with each other. And this, these things are really important. And, you know, it, like I said, it's not about just getting your rocks off. It's there's a lot of um, what I would say, personality regulation and growth and healing that happens in a true nurturing, intimate connection with somebody for both men and women. And there's there's things that need to happen that it, men and women need to do to embody these roles for each other in order to allow that to happen fully. And um, we don't have those cultural tools right now as much as we would, as much as we should have them in order to really do this for each other. So if, okay, so for our audience that's listening right now, uh, we'll go through both uh, male and female. So for men, what would be your suggestion here from like everything that you've been studying and seeing and um, understanding would be healthy for men to embody and start doing within their own relationship to um, nurture the woman and meet the needs that she needs in order to want to have sex? Mm. Wow. Great question. Okay. Let's see. Um, I would say the, the kind of the hero's journey is a really good overall kind of theme. And the hero's journey is basically as a man, you should try to make yourself the best person possible. I'm not even going to qualify it as being a man or a woman. I just, just be successful and, you know, as much as you possibly can. So what I mean by that is, you know, really try to work hard to get your life together, take responsibility for your, the things that are important to you and pursue your values. Um, and try to constantly be gaining more knowledge and pushing yourself to your limits, whether that's physically um, or intellectually. So specifically, I would say that men need to be constantly learning something new that they value, that gives them direct skill to create the things that are important to them in their life. So if you have a desire to be a musician and you're not doing anything with it, then you're going to feel like a loser, which means you're going to have low confidence, which means you're not going to be, you're not going to display confidence to your girlfriend or significant other, and she's going to pick up on that. So if you work hard to push yourself, then what happens is you feel proud of yourself and now you feel like you have something to kind of show off and then that comes across well. Um, The other thing, as I would say, is get physical and get healthy. One of the worst things you can do as um, I would say specifically as a man is to be lethargic because it lowers your testosterone levels, it lowers your self-confidence, it lowers your self-worth, and all of that's going to affect your ability to perform and be confident in a romantic setting. Um, and I would also say stop watching pornography. If you're watching pornography, then it is going to hinder almost everything in your the capacity to be sexually healthy. Um, and lastly, I would say, you know, study seduction and study how to actually be a good lover, you know, and, and where to do that. I don't necessarily have a, you know, a good place I can point you to. I've been studying a whole bunch of different pieces of research to try to figure out what the Mecca <laughs> is, so to speak there. But, um, you know, there, there's some basic fundamental principles that really work well. I mean, one of the things that porn teaches men not to do well is to be um, a lot more adventurous and um, what you might say, uh, to, to work with romance and foreplay in a sexual setting. You know, what makes the, what creates a lot of uh, sexual energy in a woman is 
the mystery and intrigue and the playfulness and the unexpected nature. So if you're, if things become too routine, if you're just, you know, it's just like cooking a meal at the end of the night, then that's going to really hinder the sexual energy vitality. And there's a whole bunch of different places you can kind of study that, that information. So, you know, I would say learning how to be, um, uh, really learning how to romance your woman Mm -hmm. or your girlfriend is really important because it's the, the, the sexual encounter is really the kind of the icing on the cake. It's not meant to be the, the be all end all. And a lot of men are kind of trained to think that's the only thing that matters, which really hinders them. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, there's a, a few places to start there. Okay. Uh, and we're going to visit one of those topics uh, right after this. Uh, so for the woman, what can the woman do um, uh, to enhance the situation for the, the man in, in, and also enhancing her own sex drive? Sure. I would say for women in particular, uh, men are – one of the things that men really respond to is the interest of a woman. So just simply taking a valid interest in what the accomplishments of your prospective mate, your man, is really important. It makes them feel seen. It makes them feel accepted and um, that they can be emboldened to go out there and be vulnerable because one of the the kind of logistical realities to sexual expression in general is just that, you know, the man is in the active role. He has to perform. He has to do things, and the woman is more of in the passive role. Not always, of course, but you know. So it takes a lot of courage to just you know, just, whether we're talking about in romance in general, where it's so a man's going into a bar, or he wants to talk to a girl that he really likes, or he, you know, he wants to um, to try to warm up to somebody he really has an affection for. It takes a tremendous amount of courage and, and fortitude to do that. And if that is received well by the woman because she is genuinely interested in him and his accomplishments, then that's going to activate a lot of his, you, you, what you might say, uh, urges to push himself out there. So um, that's one thing. The other thing, too, is being um, uh, nurturing and supportive. So a, a lot of times, you know, men don't necessarily know what the heck they're doing. They don't know what the the right thing to say is or the right flowers to buy or the right, you know, thing to do. So they have to kind of have a buckshot approach, you might say, which is to try a whole bunch of different things and see what works. And as, as the recipient of these uh, appeals, (laughs) you know, (laughs) when you can send various signals to your partner or even just tell them directly, like, Hey, I like this. I don't like that. And, and be really nurturing with it. Um, You know, it takes a lot, like I said, it takes a lot of courage for, a man to do what he does, especially living in our world where men are really robbed of a lot of intimacy. So, um, you know, if, if a man's putting himself out there like that and you, you kind of flippantly disregard him or dismiss him, that can really cripple him and make him withdraw. And, you know, that can cause a lot of problems, especially in the bedroom. So, um, so yeah, that's some kind of general stuff to think about. That's all really helpful. I think it's all really important information because I see, um, you know, I see that happening, the destruction of that intimate nature that 
uh, comes so naturally in the beginning, but then gets degraded over time uh, as a couple spends more and more time together. Because, uh, well, like, I mean, a lot of times when we're in a relationship for a long time, we forget about our own self and just working on our own self. And it's easy to project everything onto your partner. I think that's um, Mm -hmm. an issue that we're not really taught to become really aware of how we're contributing to the problem or what's uh, the the degradation of the relationship. Uh, We like to project everything onto um, someone else. And, but also, you know, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking of a relationship right now that I I know of, of of two people who are very close to me. And I can see, you know, when I'm with them, the, um, the way the woman uh, is constantly shutting the man down with perhaps any ideas that he may have, or even having a voice. And I can see it almost demasculating him to the point where there is no confidence and I can see how that's affecting her level of interest and confidence in him and attraction. And it's like this vicious cycle. And of course, this is only one cycle. There are many ways this can happen with where the men's imposing it on the woman, but I'm just talking about something that's coming to mind because I see this a lot. Actually, I think this is actually something that's very prominent where um, the, this idea of shutting down the masculine voice or opinion uh, has led to this kind of beta uh, personality within and characteristics and traits within the masculine that is feeding into this um, uh, very low intimate relationship dynamic. Right, right. Yeah, let, let's talk a little specific. It's actually a lot easier to talk about these things in specific because the the principles or the, the influences work across so many different dimensions that speaking to it generally kind of can get easily lost in the abstraction. So let's take it a situation where um, a woman is somewhat dissatisfied with her partner and she's being nagging or she's cutting into him because of she, for whatever reason, maybe he's not making enough money. Maybe he's not taking her out enough. Maybe he's disillusioned a little bit and the relationship's kind of gone stale and things have become routine and she's not happy, which is, I think is a pretty, there's a lot of that happening in our world. Mm -hmm. I think we can agree with that. Okay. Well, first of all, there's, um, the concept of hypergamy, which is the tendency to want to basically get a better situation for the male hypergamy is you're looking for a more attractive woman female hypergamy is you're looking for a stronger man who can either support you materially more or give you the better embody the more masculine role that you want and when hypergamy kicks in it's an ancient instinct that's coming online because the person that we've invested ourselves in isn't satisfying our desires in some way so if those instincts, if the from a man's perspective, if your girlfriend or your partner is, you know, a little bit nagging and they're just a little bit more frustrated and upset and they're kind of cutting into you, it's because at a deep level, she's placed you in what I would call the kingdom seat in her internal kingdom. So if you think about your consciousness, you have a queen's chair if you're a woman, that's where you're sitting. Well, you want your king to be the highest ideal, best mate possible for you. And those instincts are coming online because 
she has actually put you in that chair and she wants you to be the best version you can be. So if you're, as, as a man, if you're seeing these things happen, it's because at some level, there's something that you're not embodying in, in your expressions in the relationship that you could embody that would satisfy your, your, your girlfriend or your wife or whatever it happens to be. Um, so that plays itself out in what, you know, what's called the shit test, you know, so that we have these situations where women will test the convictions of their men in many different ways. You know, there's obviously unhealthy shit tests and healthy shit tests, but if that's happening, it's because there is that investment. So I would say like one of the things that, um, a man can do in this situation is, well, first of all, take, realize that it's not personal and that if this is happening, it's not because she's trying to cut and degrade you down as a person. It's because she's really what's happening. She wants you to be the best you can be. So what are the things, what is the specific things that are being nagged about? Are you just not necessarily, you know, being as romantic as you could be? Are you not taking it upon yourself to create that adventure and be thoughtful? You know, so maybe you can do that. You know, one of the things that happens in relationships is they become stale because, Initially, it takes a lot of like work and energy for the the man to like go on dates and put himself out there and approach her and you know he puts himself out there a lot. That's a lot of there's a lot of anxiety associated with that. And then over time, things it's like okay, well I've you know I've got her now. I can kind of relax a little bit. And then he kind of forgets, and then it's like well he hasn't taken her on a date in six months, and you know there's no romance and there's no intrigue. So be creative, be thoughtful. It takes take some time to ask yourself, what is it about my girlfriend or my partner that I really love? And then find a way to express that in a romantic capacity. One of the things that men have the ability to do is to, to kind of lead and guide what I call the relationship narrative. And that's done often through romance. So when you go on a date where you've taken the time to express the things that she means to you in the date and you speak to that whether it's in poetry whether it's because you brought her to the to the place that you first met or you've given her a gift that really means something to her because it's it's uh speaks to who she is as a person and that is a display of what you see in her as a way to reflect herself in you and that really tends to create a lot of uh I, what i would say positive aspects of the narrative of the relationship and men have the power to lead and be romantic in that sense. Um, and that will often kind of, you know, limit this type of, uh, this, you know, more nagging or, uh, hypergamous instincts. The, the, these, these shit tests come online because they're, they're trying to push you to do that. And if you embody those roles and you take that feedback properly, then you can change yourself and how you act in the relationship to be more accommodating for your partner mm -hmm. and um, really give them the, the experience they want. Um, and I would say as women, you know, if you're experiencing these tendencies, if you find yourself fantasizing about another man, which apparently happens quite often, another study they did recently is that when women are in a relationship where they feel like they're not with their ideal mate. They fantasize about other men when they're in their ovulation cycle. And if that's happening, it's, it's not because you're a bad person. It's because your partner isn't being nurtured and encouraged to be the best man he can be. And you as the, the woman in that role for your man have an incredible power to do that. So men, I would say, what can women do to support the relationship? We just talked about men. I would say women, if you're noticing these instincts coming online, 
then it's because you really do want your man to be the best man he can be. Figure out a way to nurture that. Again, men, there's a lot of dynamics happening. I would say one of them is that men are intimacy starved. And because we're intimacy starved, we're kind of like we're like living in a socially isolated situation where we don't have that nurturing that we need from our either our fellow men or society or even our parents. So when you get into a relationship with somebody, then there's a huge demand placed on your partner to kind of be that nurturing role. And if that nurturing isn't there, then the man kind of withdraws. So if there's a situation where there's dissatisfaction, that dissatisfaction is going to lead to sexual frustration in the woman. She's not going to be sexually satisfied, which is what she wants. Then that's going to create a nagging situation. That nagging is going to cut down on the man. That's going to make him less prone to be more adventurous and he's going to withdraw. And then it creates this nasty kind of, you know, feedback loop where it just spirals out of control. So try to, you know, if that's happening in your relationship, reflect on what's going on and ask yourself, well, what things can I nurture and encourage my man to do? And, you know, just simply looking and uh, looking at the accomplishments of your partner and encouraging them to be the best they can be and then praising them and, uh, you know, quote unquote, rewarding them with affection and praise is a really good way to encourage the man to continue to do the things that that embody the uh, qualities that you want in the relationship. Basically, I feel like what you're saying is look at what you can do, not because we're always looking outside of us, like what the other person needs to be doing to make you happy or satisfied. And I think it, it's more about self-focus. Like what can I do? You know, what can I focus on on myself or how can I be a better partner instead of what your partner is or isn't doing? Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the, the other thing too, is we've been misled into this belief that, you know, relationships are all about, it's like a binary. You date somebody, they're either your soulmate or they're not. And if, if things aren't perfect and romantic and like Hollywood magic, then it's because they're not the right person for you and it's time to get out and find somebody else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, love doesn't really work that way. It's, it's actually much more flexible than we would like to think. And as long as you're with somebody that you can trust, that respects you and is willing to nurture you as you are willing to nurture them, then, yeah, like you said, it's it's a much more about what can I do to bring out the best in my partner, I think, is a better perspective. And, and every relationship is different. Some, you know, and sex is different within every relationship. And, and that's, if that's what you're looking for is the primary piece of your relationship, then you know, you may leave a relationship because that's not the right thing, but there's some people that are looking for different aspects of a relationship. Some things are more important to people than that, if that makes sense. Yeah, certainly, certainly. There's a, there's many different types of relationship and the, and you, the other thing to consider too, is that relationships are the strongest setting for personal growth. So, all of your issues and baggage and problems from life in general are going to play themselves out in your relationship with your partner, especially your parental upbringing. So, um, you know, learning how to try to have a healthy self-growth process that you can do with your partner is, I think, really good as well. Yeah, and I think understanding that it's exactly what you said. Relationships are about personal growth, and we choose relationships that 
do help us grow the most. And sometimes that's uncomfortable, you know, because we get into a relationship and, and the, the areas in which we need to grow the most are mirrored back at us and we don't like it and it doesn't feel comfortable and it's easier to blame and project and move away from a relationship than to look within and find out, you know, what, what's going on with yourself and why these things are bothering you and, you know, what these triggers are bringing up in you and, and why you're projecting them onto this relationship. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I've been doing a lot of that lately. <laughs> <laughs> we all should be. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, Justin, thanks so much for coming on the show. That was a lot of great information to share with us and our audience. Really appreciate you being on today. My pleasure. Thanks so for so much for having me. It was a great discussion. So much to talk about. I know. I feel things. like we've got to have you back on um, later in the year to maybe discuss some more because there were definitely some topics that we touched on that uh, I'd love to go into more detail on. And I, and I know that there's other stuff uh, going on that we could talk about. So we'll have to have you back on again. Yes, you have a plethora of information <laughs> we can tap yeah. into. <laughs> so thanks so much. Uh, Justin, do you want to tell um, our audience uh, where they can uh, find all your stuff? Yeah, uh, my website is stillnessinthestorm.com, and that's kind of the central hub for all my, my work. And um, you can also follow me on Twitter at uh, just the letter N, stillness. Um, and I'm also going to be speaking at, uh, the dimension to disclosure conference here in August. So I hope to see some of you guys there. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show and, um, educating us all on such, I think they're very important topics because they're all, these are all issues that everyone's dealing with, um, on some level. And so mm -hmm. it's very relatable, uh, topics that we discussed today. So I know it's going to be helpful to many people in our audience and thank you to our audience for joining us again this week. Stay safe, stay well, and be the light of your own journey. Bye everyone. Bye. <laughs> Stop with the meowing. <laughs> That was Johnny. That was Johnny. That was actually that Johnny was that time. Was that like on a pad? I mean, that was so perfectly timed. Well, I, I, I knew he would me. No, I knew he would meow if I picked him up. So I picked him up right at the right time. Nicely <laughs> done. Right into the microphone. Oh, wow. It's sort of Brian's thing. He meows. And it. I also meow, yes. That's why she thought it was me. It would have been a really been, good one. Yeah. Huh? Thank you all for joining our show. We appreciate you tuning in and supporting us. If any of you have any questions you would like answered on the show or any guests that you would like to hear on our show, please email that information to us at info at enlightenup.us or send us a voice message using the Anchor app. There's a super cool feature on there that allows you to send us a message or ask us a question with a touch of a button right from the app. And please continue to support us by following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you haven't checked out Nicole's channel on YouTube yet, head on over there for some more insight from her, or you can visit her website, inflexibleme.com, where you can book a personal coaching session or a tarot reading, watch some of her most informative videos, or you can sign up for her newsletter. And if you're interested in some light language healing, head to my YouTube channel, Lisa Loves Love, or send me an email to lisa at lisaloveslove.com to inquire about your own personal reading. Thank you again for joining us and supporting us, and we'll be back with you all next week.